But we continue uh, today our talk regarding the death of the old man. The death by faith of our sinful nature. This is a very challenging and difficult concept. And Paul the Apostle knows this is a difficult concept for us to fully grasp. And so in Romans chapter seven, he begins to break it down for us from a legal perspective. What he means when he says that we have indeed died in Jesus Christ. He starts by saying, do you not know brothers and sisters? This is one of the few times in any of Paul's writings where he actually mentions brothers and sisters together. And I find it interesting that Paul is about to address these comments specifically to brothers and to sisters. And what I gather from his universal address here is an implication that the law is blind, that justice is blind. It favors neither male nor female, but it applies to both sexes equally. Brothers and sisters, don't you know? And his purpose in addressing both sexes specifically is because he is speaking to those who know the law. To all those who know the actual law as handed down from Moses. Long before the scholars and men with hidden agendas, masculine bias, got a hold of the law and altered the original meaning. He's speaking to those who know the actual law of Moses. Not merely those who know the interpretation of the law. Because after Moses, men of corrupt minds began to take the text and to adjust it and to alter it to suit their own needs, to suit their own lusts and pleasures. The, the same thing happens today. It's the reason we have liberal and conservative Christian camps. Christian scholars who approach the text with their own personal and cultural biases, reading back into the text of God those convictions, those pre-commitments that they already held before they ever conducted a biblical search. Somehow, coincidentally, the Bible happens to agree with all of their presuppositions, with all of their biases. It's why we have so many versions of the Bible today. You ever wonder about that? Why do we have so many versions of the Bible? Each version is nuanced to suit various theological positions held by different factions of the church. And instead of simply translating the text word for word, these scholars take the liberty of interpreting certain aspects of the text in order to make it read in their preferred manner. That's why we use the NASB in this church because the NASB is a word for word translation. So is the ESV and the King James Version, but many, even the NIV, many of the other versions are not word for word, they're thought for thought or phrase for phrase so that you lose the impact and the original meaning of the Word of God, men with their own agendas. 
Back to the text. Paul says, do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? That's common sense. Dead people don't pay taxes. Dead people don't pay speeding tickets. The law does not apply to a dead person, only to those who are alive. And if you commit a crime but you die before your day in court, those charges will be dismissed. You can't be arrested if you're dead. The law has authority only as long as a person is alive. It does not have authority over the dead. Remember last week, Paul the Apostle admonished you and me to consider ourselves dead. And this is why. Because the law has authority over the living, not over the dead. For example, Paul says, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to her husband and vice versa. The man is bound to his wife as long as she is alive. But that's according to the original law as God designed it. The original law as Moses first handed it down. But, but by Jesus' time and by Paul's time, this law has been revised in favor of men. And the men of Jesus' day took exception with the original law. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason, the man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh? That's the law of God in its original translation. The male married to the female become one flesh. Jesus explains in verse 6, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. The law of marriage, according to God's original design, was a lifelong commitment. One man married to one woman forever. But the Pharisees had a problem with Jesus' understanding of the law of marriage. And they replied to him, and they asked Jesus this question. Well, if that's true, Jesus, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Moses said we can get a divorce. Moses said we are not one flesh forever. So Jesus explained to us, why did Moses give this command? That we give our wives a certificate of divorce and send her away. Why then did Moses take such liberty with the text? Why then did Moses change God's rules? Why did this man who had seen God, who had spoken with God face to face, a man who watched as God engraved the law into tablets of stone, why would Moses add nuance to the law of God? And Jesus explained, Jesus replied to him and said this, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. 
Moses bowed to cultural, political, and social pressure. That's why he amended God's law. He was afraid that if he didn't give in to you all, that the law would find all of you guilty. Moses knew that you were not going to obey the law of marriage, and so he blinked. He knew that you were going to continue to abandon your wives whenever you felt like it, so instead of holding God's line, Moses caved. He feared man more than he feared God, so he gave them permission to divorce their wives without any consequence. Well, well, let me rephrase that. He gave them permission to divorce their wives without any social consequence. Because even though Moses gave permission, the law of God did not change. Marriage between a man and a woman for life, except in specific circumstances, remained and remains the original intention and nature of the law. Moses had no right, Moses had no authority to change the law, to amend the law. Jesus goes on to explain that while Moses gave them permission to divorce, it was not this way from the beginning, Jesus says. Moses was a man in the house of God, but Jesus Christ is the man over the house of God. And Jesus declares, I tell you, that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. That's the law, and the law did not change. The law of marriage remains despite cultural changes, changes in taste and changes in preferences. God's law does not change, Jesus declares. But of course, the Pharisees were aggravated by Jesus' decree. And surprisingly, even his own disciples were aggravated by this decree. They respond to Jesus' statement, they say this, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Wow. These brothers were really serious about getting their divorces. They were serious about their right to leave their wives. If this is the situation, if I have to stay with the same woman for life, it's better for me not to get married at all. That's <laughs> probably the same thing they said to Moses. Well, Moses, if we have to stay married to the same woman all of our lives, then we're not going to marry. That means we won't have children. That means the promise to Israel will never come to pass. So Moses, it's your choice. What you gonna do? Moses is held hostage. His choice was to either grant these men a reprieve from the law of marriage or stand by and watch as they die off, leaving no posterity. And so Moses granted them their reprieve. But Jesus didn't. And as we see from our text here in Romans, Paul doesn't grant their reprieve either. He says in verse 3, so then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. She is called an adulteress. By who? Who calls her an adulteress? The law calls her an adulteress. A spouse who has sexual relations with someone besides his or her spouse commits adultery. That is the law. That is the rule. But, Paul says, if her husband dies, she is released from the law, and she is not an adulteress if she marries another man. 
Let me read that again. If her husband dies, she is released from that law. Now, now nobody get any crazy ideas. <laughs> if, if my husband dies, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> Heard about the lady in California, the doctor in California just recently, who had been putting a little Drano in her husband's tea every morning. You guys heard about that? Yeah. For months and months, he's been putting a little Drano in his tea every morning, killing him softly. If her husband dies, she is released from that law. I guess she wanted to be released. She understood the law of marriage, but maybe she didn't understand the law of attempted murder. And so now she's in jail. Let's go on with Paul. By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. And that's what we learned last week. We have died to the law. But from which law have we been released? We're gonna to try to answer that question shortly, but Paul says that, that we have died to the law through the body of Christ. In other words, by faith, you and I and every believer has voluntarily submitted to death on the cross with and through Jesus Christ. And, and because we are dead, the law no longer has any authority over us. The law no longer applies to us. We have died to the law, Paul says, that you might belong to another. To him who, who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. You have died to the law so that you can belong to another. Now, now, if we follow Paul's analogy of marriage, we can't help but ask the question, who did we belong to before then? That's the question, who did we belong to before? We died to the law to be married to another, so who were we married to in the beginning? That's the question. Paul answers the question in verse five and he says this, for when we were in the realm of the flesh, this was our marriage partner. Stay with me for this. This was our marriage partner. Before we confessed Jesus Christ, we were married to our flesh, to our own flesh. We were committed to our flesh, to serve it, to please it, to obey it. For our flesh, we were willing to leave mother and father. So that our flesh could have its way, we would do literally anything. We were faithfully committed to our sinful nature, justifying all of our sinful actions, pacifying all of our fears. We too, me and my sinful nature, were one 
This is the mystery. I became united to my flesh and it was the only way that I could feel able to survive in this world. Your flesh has been with you since birth. I'm not talking about your body, your physical body. I'm talking about your sinful nature has been with you since your birth. He is the architect of each of your defense mechanisms. Your flesh is the founder of your worldview. By the flesh, most of us have become successful. By following the flesh's schemes and plans and designs, we have secured good futures for ourselves through the flesh. The flesh has been shaped, the flesh has been developed and informed by external factors like trauma and pleasure and affirmations and all of the experiences of your lifetime. They have all served to shape your sinful nature. It is the aspect of ourselves that hopes to live completely apart from God, independent, unaccountable, it is the aspect of ourselves that seeks to find its way in this world based on our own intuitions, desires, and pleasures without God, the flesh. And this is what makes the flesh such a formidable opponent. Because your flesh knows where all of the bodies are buried. Your flesh knows all of your greatest weaknesses and all of your greatest fears. And most of the time, your flesh is a silent partner. You don't even recognize that you're living a lie. Your flesh is most of the time a silent partner. And as long as the flesh gets its way, it doesn't make much fuss. But the moment you try to lay down any rule, hmm, the moment you make that annual resolution, the moment that you decide that you need to reel yourself in to go on a diet, to develop a new disposition or whatever it is, the moment you lay down a rule for the flesh, that's when your flesh shows itself for what it truly is, a bully and you learn who the flesh really is the moment you try to introduce God's law to it. Paul says, when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us. Oh my. When we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused, listen to this, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us. More than anything, your flesh desires to be number one, numero uno, all the time. More than anything, the flesh wants to do whatever it wants to do, whenever it wants to do it, and how it wants to do it. And the moment the flesh hears, thou shalt not, all hell breaks loose. And you find out that you're living in the house of a maniac. <laughs> mm. 
agitated by the law of modesty, the flesh wants to wear more skimpy outfits. Irritated by the very idea that drunkenness is a crime before God, the flesh orders another round for everybody <laughs> and puts you behind the steering wheel of a car, drunken and driving. That's the flesh. When you try to get the flesh in line, it rebels. And when you show the flesh the law of God, you have a fight on your hands. The sinful passions are aroused by the law of God and it is at work in you and in me. That's the flesh for you. The flesh doesn't take orders from anyone. Rebellious and independent and wild. And you never get any indication of the diabolical nature of your own flesh until you try to introduce rules of the road. Then you find out rather quickly that you are married to a fool. The flesh is a fool. He is a fool that you cannot control. He is a fool that you cannot handle. And because the flesh is so intimately aware of all of your weaknesses, he is a fool who knows how to break you down when you attempt to break free from his grasp. The flesh has power. The most formidable opponent that you will ever encounter in your life is not someone outside of yourself. It's not the devil and it's not his imps. No, your greatest opponent and the villain in every one of your life experiences is your own flesh. Upon whom most of your life and most of your existence you have depended on. The flesh is the power broker who makes oneness with God such a challenge and such a struggle. Because the only way that you can draw closer to Jesus Christ is if your flesh dies more and more. But like the poet said, the flesh, the flesh will not go gently into the night. There's gonna be a fight. There's gonna be a struggle. Somebody came to me last week and said to me, you're talking about the flesh dying. Man, just thinking about that just makes me so afraid. It makes me nervous. Just thinking about the idea of my flesh having, to, my sinful nature having to die. Yeah, 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 that's normal. That's, the flesh is going to put up a fight anytime you start talking about annihilation. You've got a fight on your hands. It's not gonna be easy. It's not a simple thing. The flesh has power and the flesh knows how to push the button of your anxiety and push the button of your depression and push the button of your fear. He's not going gently. <laughs> You've seen people get saved sometime and they come to the altar. I don't know if you guys saw that before. Come to the altar to get saved and they're trembling. And you wonder, what, what's wrong with her? The flesh is saying, no, get away from that altar. We're not doing this today. I have a completely different agenda and I'm not going the Jesus way. So you need to go back to your seat. And they stand there just shaking. And you think they have stage fright. No, it's not stage fright. The flesh is making its case. Remember how good I've been to you? When you were depressed and you couldn't talk to anybody, remember how I brought you through? How dare you go to Jesus and, and, and leave me like this? Send me to a cross. Who do you think you are? I know all of your buttons. The best thing you can do is back away from your confession. The flesh is a bully. 
The flesh is a tough bully. I've had personal experience with this. I'll tell you about it sometime. I, I, I was praying about 10 years ago. Trouble had found me from nowhere. Don't know where it came from to this day. Don't know where it came from. I was just troubled in my spirit. I couldn't shake it loose. And I got on my knees and went into spiritual warfare. I said, whatever this is, this has to go. I can't live like this. So, so let's get rid of this right now. In the name of Jesus, and I said my thing, and I'm ready to fight. And a still small voice said to me so quietly, Calvin, you can't cast out you. And I said, no way, this is not me. This, is not, this looks like the devil. This is not me. Yeah, Calvin. Your flesh looks just like its father. Yeah. That's not the devil, that's just, your, that's just your flesh. And he's mad. And he's throwing a temper tantrum. He's sending you into depression as you're sitting in the dark. That's just your flesh. Because you're trying to change. You're trying to live this new life. And the flesh is saying, absolutely not, we're not going there. I'm not going there. Hmm. And you find yourself in a fight. We're going to talk about that in the weeks to come where Paul starts talking about this fight that's going on. Hmm. Sinful passions are aroused by the law. And sinful passion goes to work in us so that we bear fruit, Paul says, for death. So then, let me get an understanding here what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that it is your flesh, it is your sinful nature that causes you to sin. Your flesh, your sinful nature is sin itself. Stay with me for this. Your flesh, your sinful nature is the child of the devil, the son or the daughter of the world. That's your flesh. And all of us have it. Here's the challenge with your flesh, brothers and sisters. Here's what Christians have to come to understand. Here is the challenge with your flesh. The flesh cannot be redeemed. Uh-oh. The flesh cannot be saved. Uh-oh. So all this trying to do it right and trying to practice doing everything right is a, really a waste of your time because the flesh, no matter how well the flesh does, the flesh is destined for death. It cannot be. It can only be crucified. Oh, oh, this is what it means to be saved. The flesh has to die. This is the wisdom of God. The flesh cannot be redeemed. The Bible says the flesh cannot submit to the law of God. It can't do it even if it wanted to. Hmm. The flesh cannot submit to the law of Moses. The flesh cannot submit to the law of grace. The flesh can only submit and succumb to the law of death. This is what makes the flesh such a challenging, such a frightening adversary. You know what it is? 
You ready for this one? The flesh is the only me that I have ever known. You got to step back and think about that one, man. The flesh is the only me that I have ever known. And for you to tell me that my flesh has to die means that Calvin has to become undefined. That I have to lose my place. That my GPS can no longer find me. I'm just out here by faith and there's no more me. That is difficult. My flesh is the only me. Your flesh is the only you that you have ever known. Been witnesses birth. Hmm. Whatever identity I have discovered about myself, whatever is meant by the term I, that is the flesh. That is the only I that before I came to Christ, that was the only I that I had ever known. So when we begin to talk about the flesh dying, we're not talking about some external character to whom I have no allegiance and no alliance. No, we are talking about the very thing that makes you, you, as far as you know. And this is why Jesus says, if a person comes to me, he has to deny his mother and his father and his sister and his house and his land. What Jesus is saying is everything that has defined you you must walk away from. You say, but Jesus, if I walk away from everything that has defined me, my mother defined me, my father defined me, if you tell me to walk away from everything that has defined me, what am I walking to? And God says, like he told Abraham, just go into a land, I'll show you later. And that's the walk of faith, that I'm no longer here that I've lost my definition, that I have voluntarily given up my definition to be defined and redefined by Jesus the Christ in his time, over time. Huh. <laughs> and this is why, though many of us have already come to Jesus, our flesh is not nearly as dead as it's supposed to be. We've been baptized, we didn't get fully immersed in the water. We left a part of our flesh hanging out of the water, so it's still alive and causing us all kinds of trouble. We haven't been immersed fully beneath the water of the Holy Spirit. So we've only partially committed to Jesus Christ. Because without him, without the flesh, we feel vulnerable and vague, cast into the world without the defenses of reason or the power of human will. Many of us remain committed to our flesh because we do not believe that we can face life without our flesh. The flesh has made itself too useful as a companion. When we were young and depressed, it was the flesh who gave us ideas to make our lives bearable. When we were failing at life, it was some worldly philosophy that helped us carve out meaning and purpose in the world. Our flesh has been useful to us. 
When we were violated and couldn't tell a soul about what happened to us, it was the flesh who walked with us through that troubled time and saw us through. And so now we've come to Jesus. And while we may have thought it was going to be an easy transition to go from darkness to light, we come to find that we cannot walk away from the flesh as easily as it would have seemed. And while our flesh may have never given us much hassle at all, the moment we try to evade the grip of our flesh, the moment we try to ignore its demands, we find that we are bound to the flesh, that we are married to the flesh. And the only way that we can get free is if the flesh dies so that we can be married to another. My, my. Paul the Apostle says this way, but now by dying to what once bound us. You read that and you think he's saying that the law bound you. No, Paul is talking about your flesh. Now that we have died to what bound us, we have been released from the law. And now we begin to recognize, hopefully by now as I'm talking, we've begun to recognize this, this peculiar dichotomy within our own selves. It's not a very pronounced differentiation and certainly not one that you want to dwell on for too long. Otherwise you might become schizophrenic or have a split personality. You don't want to dwell on it too long. Yet within myself, there appears to be two separate and distinct persons. There is myself created by God for God's glory, but there is also my flesh molded and shaped by this world, by its principles, and by its cultures. Two aspects of the same person. But we have actually never known our true selves. Because the only way we could be our true selves would be to go again into the Garden of Eden where there was no hunger, there was no longing, and there were no unmet needs. Stay with me. Adam, Adam and Eve were carefree in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had no defense mechanism because there was no threat. Adam and Eve never had to consider stealing because all of their needs were readily supplied and met by God. There was no jealousy because they both saw God face to face. There was no worry because both of them were completely aware that God was in control of everything around them. We do not have that benefit. You and I have never known Eden living. We are born into thorns and thistles. We have grown up with threats and chaos long before we could understand who Jesus was. We were experiencing all sorts of setbacks and injuries and problems. Our flesh, listen to this carefully, our flesh is our response to this troubled world. Our flesh is the means by which we learn to survive and even to thrive in this world. 
The flesh is the only you that you had ever known before you came to Jesus. You depended on it. You approved of it. And you were bound to it. But here is the problem that we faced, the theological problem that we faced. The flesh is the sinful nature. And the law has a warrant out for the flesh's arrest. We're married to a fugitive. We're married to a convict. And while he has managed so far to evade the law, the day is going to come where the law is going to catch him and the flesh is going to have to pay the ultimate price. We're married to this convict. And the law will not stop until our flesh has paid the price for its rebellion against God. The flesh must pay the price for making itself God. And here's the rub. If we refuse to turn our flesh over to the law for the sentence of death, we ourselves will be found guilty of harboring a fugitive and we will be judged right along with our persona. The persona, the flesh that we have allowed to embody and to overtake our true selves. I said this before, I'm going to say it again next week probably, but I'm going to say it right now. Jesus Christ did not come into the world to judge humans. Jesus Christ came into the world to judge sin. What he's saying to you and to me is, you are harboring sin within you. And what I'm telling you is, if you extract yourself from your flesh and let me just judge the flesh, you can have eternal life. I don't have a problem with you. I have a problem with sin. But sin has taken up residence in me. I am married to sin. And Jesus Christ comes and dies on the cross and says to me, you can allow your flesh to be crucified with me. Your sin can be judged in advance. And you, Calvin, you, Steve, you, 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 should, you can have eternal life. But the flesh is going to pay the price. And if I come to judge and I find sin in you, you will be guilty of harboring a fugitive. And you too will be judged with your flesh. Can you see that? This is the wisdom of God. You don't don't have to believe me right now if you don't want to. In a couple weeks, we're going to get to the text and just make it very plain. Paul makes it very plain. Humanity is not the problem. Sin is the problem. God loves every human soul, but God hates sin. And if I decide that I'm going to be a harborer of that sin that God has declared, pronounced death upon, then death will find me as well. Thank God that through Jesus Christ, we have died to what's once, what once bound us. We have been released from the law because the law is only looking for sin and not for me. 
so that now we serve in the new way of the Spirit. Now we serve God, not by external means and not by our own power, which is the power of the flesh. But we serve in the new way of the Spirit, a way made available to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord, a way that was closed to us before. And all we could hope to do was to follow the law as best we could. And you know it as well. The flesh knows how to pretend. The flesh knows how to pretend to follow God. The flesh knows how to be religious. The flesh knows how to go through the motions of devotion. That's a part of his survival mechanism. It's chameleon characteristics. But the flesh cannot worship God in spirit. Because the flesh is of its father, the devil. Now we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. I taught a couple lessons ago that this, this does not mean that we do not adhere to the law. What it means is that we are able to fully appreciate, we are able to fully commit to God our Father from the innermost part of our being and not by the rote of religion or of religious feeling. Our salvation is a much greater mystery than many of us understand. What the cross of Jesus Christ truly means for us and the operation of our salvation is such a great mystery. <laughs> but the more you study it, you realize the wisdom of our God. Saying, Calvin, you have a problem, man. It's not your fault, I'm not saying it's your fault. I'm not saying it's your fault. But you're a sinner. I'm not sinning, I'm doing the best I can. Well, no, 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 no. Maybe you're not even sinning, but your nature is sinful. And your nature has to die. And Jesus Christ through his cross has made a way for your nature to die and for you to continue living. But you must be willing to become undefined by worldly wisdom by society, by your own opinions, and you have to allow the Holy Spirit to begin to remake and to reshape you into the man of God, into the woman of God that God originally designed you to be. That is salvation. So consider yourselves dead. Understand that you have been crucified, your flesh has been crucified with Jesus Christ on the cross. Practice it every day. Think about it at least once a day and watch and see the transformation of God begin to occur more and more in your life as you submit voluntarily to hanging on that cross with Jesus Christ by faith. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, words can never truly fully express your great wisdom the operation of your Holy Spirit and the meaning and the purpose of the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ I thank you for your word today I thank you for giving us understanding hearts 
And as we continue to go through the book of Romans, I pray that the eyes of our understanding would become enlightened. So that we come to realize that we don't need to put forth a whole lot of effort to walk this Christian walk. But that the wisest thing that we can do is to yield to your Holy Spirit, to submit to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ by faith, to allow the Holy Spirit to have his way in our lives. We desire to be more like you, Father God. And the only way that we can become more like you is through the cross of Christ. Give us the courage, Lord God, to be baptized again into your Holy Spirit, to be fully immersed into the waters of your Spirit until it is no longer I, but Jesus Christ, who lives in me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.